Welcome to the fifth season of Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. This episode was made possible by a grant from the Templeton World Charity Foundation, and parts of this content first appeared at the 2022 Global Scientific Conference on Human Flourishing. For more, go to humanflourishing.org. Today's episode features a brand new song from activist and musician and producer Milk, also known as Connie Lim. The song wrestles with the deeply complicated and often contentious subject of forgiveness. And in order to explore some of the scientific mechanics behind forgiveness, I'll be speaking with Dr. Suzanne Friedman. But first, the story that inspired Connie's song by an old friend of songwriter. I am Cheryl Strayed, and I always am foremost a writer, but that has many tendrils and branches. Uh, One of the cool things of my writing career has been that I have written, it turns out, in a bunch of different forms. I write books, of course, and in over the last several years, I've also made some forays into screenwriting. I've written a screenplay, actually three drafts of a screenplay about Janis Joplin, as it happens. I also have become a TV writer recently. My book, Tiny Beautiful Things, has been adapted into a TV show for Hulu. And I also sort of developed an accidental career as a public speaker. And of course, I teach writing on occasion as well. And I consider that kind of my, my spiritual work really in the world. While waiting for the publication of what would become her best-selling memoir, Wild, Cheryl was given an opportunity that would change her life. I got a uh, an email from Steve Almond, who was an acquaintance of mine, and he said, I've been writing this Dear Sugar column anonymously for this website called The Rumpus. And he said, I know you read it because I've received exactly one fan letter and it is from you. <laughs> he said, listen, I don't want to keep doing this column. Nobody's reading it. It's. It, I don't write it very often. It, nobody writes to me for advice. But if you want to take it over, I actually think that you might be, you know, the real sugar. Who doesn't want to hear other people's secrets? That's been my, like, lifelong dream, <laughs> to be inside everyone's mind. That's always been the thing I've been most curious about is really what's going on beneath the surface, behind the facade. I've always been somebody who paid really close attention to emotional realities. I was always most interested in, in, in others, like what was happening beneath the surface, and also really open to excavating my own stuff. And so just one example of forgiveness in my life, you know, I, I, ha- I grew up with an abusive father, left my life when he was six, but he harmed me before that age and then, and then ab- abandoned me after that age. And really it, it's taken me decades to get to that place of forgiving him. And many, many things have helped me along the way. But I have to say that one of them was myself harming somebody else. I was married young, I cheated on my first husband, I said sorry, and then over many years, I, you know, I realized I had made amends with him, I had apologized to him. 
about harming him. But what I realized is I had to forgive myself because the person who I had really violated in committing that infidelity was me. I had acted against my own values, against my own code. And, and having to do that actually helped me forgive my father. Because what I had to do when I forgave myself for, for lying and deceiving somebody I loved is I had to see that I that I had been doing the best I could and I didn't do a good job. I didn't live up to my own values. It, it opened the door for me to think about maybe my father had done that as well. You know, maybe my father had actually loved me as well as he could. Now that doesn't make anything that he did justifiable or excusable, but it made, it brought me to a place of understanding. Forgiveness can be a very light thing, you know? Um, you you say you, you say something that, that, a joke that somebody takes the wrong way and you have to say sorry, or sometimes it's a much deeper and more complicated thing that takes years to reckon with. One of the mistakes we make, I think, is we're like, oh, we're letting people off the hook, but no, you're actually, more deeply granting them and yourself your complicated, messy, beautiful humanity. This is Cheryl Strayed reading a letter and her response to it from Tiny Beautiful Things at a plenary session of the 2022 Global Scientific Conference on Human Flourishing. Dear Sugar, for many years to varying degrees, I stole compulsively. For many of the years I stole, I was on a cocktail of psychotropic drugs for depression, anxiety, and insomnia. In retrospect, I think the drugs made me powerless to fight against the compulsion to take things. An impulse would arise in my head, say, to take this pair of jeans from a friend, that book from that friend, or the abandoned flower pots that sat on the porch of an empty house. I even once took money out of the wallet of my future mother-in-law. When the ideas arose to take whatever it was, I would try to talk myself out of it, but I couldn't stop myself ultimately. I don't do it anymore. I've been off all the meds for about six years, and I'm able to control the impulse, which in fact... I rarely have now. I can't totally blame the meds because before I was taking them, I also had the imp impulse to steal and did on occasion succumb to it. I blame myself, I think, because of my complicated psychology, my abusive childhood, my mother screaming at me from time immemorial that I was a liar, a cheat, and a thief. I was not only trying to fulfill my mother's prophecy, but maybe trying to get people to hate and reject me for taking from them, for being a liar and a thief. I have also compulsively told whopping lies to people, over-the-top stories. They seem to just come out. I loathe myself for these acts. I don't know how to wipe the slate clean. I'm terrified that friends and loved ones who I deceived and stole from, whether they're taking a, by taking a material possession or by making up a story, will find out what I did. I am not that person anymore, and I haven't been for years. My greatest wish is to be able to forgive myself, to stop hating myself for these betrayals. I've tried to forgive myself for a long while, but I'm finding I'm no closer to it. I read a lot about this topic, and I'm back in therapy after years of being out of it, but I still hate myself for what I've done. I know I will not take from anyone again in any way. Is that enough? 
Do I have to admit to those I stole from that I did? Or can I forgive myself without admitting to people how I wronged them? I know they would reject me if I were to admit what I'd done, even though I have not been a liar and a thief for a long, long time. I am so sorry for what I've done, and I would give anything not to have done what I have. Please help, sugar. I'm tortured. Signed, Desperate. Dear Desperate, 15 years ago, I had a yard sale. I just moved to the city where I now live, and I was literally down to my last 20 cents. So I put nearly everything I owned out on the lawn, my thrift store dresses and books, my bracelets and knickknacks, my dishes and shoes. Customers came and went throughout the day, but my primary companions were a group of pre-adolescent neighborhood boys who flitted in and out looking at my things, inquiring, inquiring about how much this and that cost, though they neither had the money to purchase nor an inclination to possess the boring non-boy items I had to sell. Late in the afternoon, one of the boys told me that another of the boys had stolen something from me, an empty retro leather camera case that I'd once used as a purse. It was a small thing, a barely worth bothering about item that would have sold for something like five bucks. But still, I asked the accused boy if he'd taken it. No, he yelled and stormed off. The next day, he returned wearing a big gray hoodie. He lurked near the table where I'd set my things to sell. And when he believed I wasn't looking, he pulled the camera case from beneath his jacket and placed it where it had been sitting the day before. Your thing is back, he said to me nonchalantly a while later, pointing to the camera case as if he'd played no part in its reappearance. Good, I said. Why did you steal it? I asked. But again, he denied that he had. It was a sunny fall day. A few of the boys sat with me on the porch steps, telling me bits about their lives. The boy who'd stolen my camera case pulled up his sleeve and flexed his arm so he could show me his biceps. He insisted in a tone more belligerent than any of the others that the cluster of shiny chains he wore around his neck were real gold. Why did you steal my camera case? I asked again after a while, but he again denied that he had though he altered his story this time to explain that he'd only taken it temporarily because he was going to get going to his house to get his money and then he'd opted not to purchase it after all. We talked some more about other things and soon it was just the two of us. He told me about the mother he rarely saw and his much older siblings, about what kind of hot car he was going to buy the instant he turned 16. Why did you steal my camera case? I asked once more. And this time, he didn't deny it. Instead, he looked down at the ground and said very quietly, but very clearly, because I was lonely. There are only a few times anyone has been as self-aware and nakedly honest as that boy was with me in that moment. When he said what he said, I almost fell off the steps. I've thought about that boy so many times in those in the last 15 years, perhaps because when he told me what he did about himself, he told me something about myself, too. I used to steal things, too, desperate. I had the inexplicable urge to take what didn't belong to me. I simply could not resist. I took a compact of blue eyeshadow from my great aunt in Philadelphia, a pretty, blue, a pretty sweater from a school friend, bars of soap and fancy wrappers from near strangers' bathrooms, and a figurine of a white dog with his head askew, among other things. 
By the time I met the lonely boy at my yard sale, I hadn't stolen for years, but like you, the things I'd taken haunted me. I'd meant no harm, but I had the horrible feeling that I'd caused it. And worse still, the intermittent urge to steal hadn't entirely left me, though I'd kept myself from acting on it since I was 18. I didn't know why I stole those things, and I still can't properly say, though, because I was lonely seems about the rightest thing I've ever heard. I think you were lonely too, sweet pea. And lonely isn't a crime. Maybe what happened in those years you were stealing and lying is you had a mother-sized hole to fill inside of you. And you stuffed it with a bunch of things that didn't belong to you and said a lot of things that weren't true. Because on some subconscious level, you thought doing so would make the hole disappear. But it didn't. And you came to understand that, and you found a way to begin to heal yourself. You need to heal better. Forgiveness is the next step, as you so acutely know. I don't think your path to wholeness is walking backward on the trail. The people you stole from don't need you to fess up. They need you to stop tormenting yourself over all those things you took that don't matter very much anymore. I'm not sure why you haven't been able to do that so far. But I imagine it has something to do with the story you've told yourself about yourself. The narratives we create in order to justify our actions and choices become in so many ways who we are. They are the things we say back to ourselves to explain our complicated lives. Perhaps the reason you've not yet been able to forgive yourself is that you're still invested in your self-loathing. Perhaps not forgiving yourself is the flip side of your steal this now cycle. Would you be a better or worse person if you forgave yourself for the bad things you did? If you perpetually condemn yourself for being a liar and a thief, does that make you good? I don't like the thief part of my narrative either. I struggled mightily with whether or not I should write about it here. It's the first time I've written about it, ever. I've written about all sorts of bad things I've done, promiscuous sex, drugs, but this seems worse because unlike those other things, telling you that I used to steal things doesn't jibe with the person I want you to perceive me as being, but it is the person I am. And I've forgiven myself for that. Years after I stopped stealing things, I was sitting alone by a river as I sat looking at the water, I found myself thinking about all the things I'd taken that didn't belong to me. And before I even knew what I was doing, I began picking a blade of grass for each one and then dropping it into the water. I am forgiven, I thought, as I let go of the blade that stood in for the blue eyeshadow. I am forgiven, I thought, for each of those fancy soaps. I am forgiven for the dog figurine and the pretty sweater and so on until I'd let all the bad things I'd done float right on down the river. And I'd said, I am forgiven so many times. It felt like I really was. That doesn't mean I've never grappled with it again. Forgiveness doesn't just sit there like a pretty boy in a bar. Forgiveness is the old fat guy you have to haul up the hill you have to say, I am forgiven again and again until it becomes the story you believe about yourself, desperate. I hope you will. I don't know whatever became of that lonely boy at my yard sale. 
I hope he's made right whatever was wrong inside of him. That camera case he stole from me was still sitting on the table when I closed down my sale. You want this? I asked, holding it out to him. He took it from me and smiled. Yours, sugar. At the conference, after Cheryl had read the excerpt from Tiny Beautiful Things, she and Connie and I had a chance to talk about forgiveness with Dr. Suzanne Friedman. I loved everything she had to say, and I found myself both really in deep agreement with her and also wanting, again, like just wanting to hear so much more from her. Our time went so quickly. I do think it's a really important distinction that that she made and that, that I've made a couple of times too, Forgiveness is not reconciliation. You know, am I going to carry around a sense of fury or rage or harm or hurt that this person perpetrated against me? Or am I going to release those emotions and replace them with something else? I'm Suzanne Friedman. I'm a wife, parent to three children. I'm a daughter to aging parents. I'm a a professor of human development, and friends are important to me, so I I think of myself as a friend as well. I became interested in forgiveness as a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I didn't set out to study forgiveness. I, I was really interested in attachment. I was assigned to Robert Enright as my graduate school advisor. He had just started studying the topic of forgiveness. The fact that forgiveness has an applied focus, that we work with individuals in helping them forgive, there's forgiveness therapy, that really fit with my interest in counseling. Forgiveness is complicated in the sense that there's a lot of misconceptions about what forgiveness is and isn't. Messages from society paint forgiveness as something that you say the words, I forgive you, or confused with, um, if you receive an apology, you're automatically supposed to forgive. People think that forgiveness automatically leads to reconciliation. We hear a lot of messages about forgiveness being something good to do, but we're not given a lot of information about how to forgive. A lot of people feel like Holding on to their anger is going to make them feel better because they don't want to give anything to the person. But what they are not realizing is that they are still dealing with the loss. Whether they hold on to the anger or not, the car accident still happened. There's no changing that. So you're dealing with the pain and the consequences of that car accident. And if you hold on to your anger, then you're dealing with that and that's taking a toll on you. Or you can you know, work to forgive where you you let go of the anger and that could put you in a better spot to deal with the consequences of the car accident because that's not changing no matter how you respond. Definitely anger in the beginning is, is very justified and powerful. You have a right to feel that anger, but if you've ever been deeply hurt and, you know, holding on to it, after a while, it doesn't feel good anymore. It's, it really takes its toll. That stuff is tiring. 
that's affecting your, your life in other ways. You want to let that go. I think we need to do a better job of meeting people where they're at and validating them when bad things happen and allowing them to be in that pain, to express that pain, help them through that pain in healthy ways rather than where people feel like they can't share how they're feeling, they can't share their grief, their anger, because it won't be acceptable. And then they push, push until it explodes at the flight attendant because they're so angry about something that happened to them that they have a right to be angry or hurt about. When, when, when a child will come home to their parents and say, I wasn't invited to Sally's birthday party, I'm so sad. My mom would say, don't worry, you'll be invited to the next birthday party. And there's so much value in comes, that comes with recognizing how a person is feeling. And it, and it helps them then know that they can survive. That was sad. How do you feel about it? Draw a picture. Let's talk about it. That shows a child, an individual, that they could deal with those emotions, that they will survive. In our culture, everything has to be happy and fine and good. So when we ask people how they are, we don't normalize that life includes suffering. Part of being a human being is dealing with uncomfortable emotions, not negative emotions, anger, sadness, disappointment. We see them as negative emotions that we shouldn't have them. That's part of being a human. That's part of everyday living. No one wants to be judged by their worst action, but people do judge themselves and, and society does as well. You have to accept yourself, your best and your worst self. The difference between self-forgiveness and forgiveness of others is when you forgive another person, you don't have to reconcile with them. You don't have to enter back in a relationship, but when you forgive yourself, you do. for the song written in response to Cheryl's story by an artist specifically chosen by Cheryl. I simply love her music. I love her voice. Every time I hear her sing, she just goes right to my heart. Like I feel her in in my body. She touches me deeply. She gives me chills. She brings tears to my eyes. She makes me feel both the pain and the beauty of our existence. My name's Connie Lim. My artist's name is Milk. It's my last name spelled backwards and then my first two initials. I am a musician, songwriter, producer. I, I toggle between the words of advocate and activist. And sometimes I feel like, I don't know if I'm a full-on activist. I've, I've seen full-on activists. And then sometimes I challenge my perfectionism and maybe allow myself that title. My hope is that my music helps people unlock things that um, they're ready to unlock. I think as humans, we sometimes lock up the harder things. And I think music's been my tool of coping with the harder things in my life. And so I tend to write about that. 
people put on their headphones and it's going directly into their ears. Any of those like less beautiful, you know, um, Instagrammable things are things that I can kind of croon into someone's headphones so they can feel a little less alone. Quiet is this song that emerged after years of feeling this lump in my throat. And I tried to write like many iterations of a song that would free me of this lump in my throat so I could feel like I'm finally said what I needed to say. And I brought that song to the Women's March years after we wrote it, like maybe a year after we wrote it. And I'm gonna just like sing this song with people because the, the rage and the angst I feel watching this election is also the same rage and angst I felt that caused me to write quiet for my own journey as a survivor of sexual assault and domestic violence. Someone happened to walk by, her name's Alma Harrell, and she posted a video of us singing. And in two days, it amassed at least 8 million views. I've, I remember just being flabbergasted. And then I witnessed choirs all over the world taking the song and making it their own, translating to their own languages. Cheryl Strayed is that type of writer that pulls and yanks at our soul. So, like we, I can read her work, even if I don't want to get emotional, it just gets yanked out of me. I'm like, well, she's so heart driven. There was a particular quote that Cheryl Strayed wrote in Wild, talking about her deciding to not be afraid. I have been taught my whole life that I can't walk alone at night. I can't go into nature alone. Like being alone as a woman out in the world, especially the wilderness, was considered a very dangerous thing. So I printed out the the quote that she had in, in Wild about deciding not, not to be afraid and not letting fear dictate her actions, and I. Taped it. I scotch taped it on my wall and um, had it there for years, actually. Cut to years later, Quiet Goes Viral. I'm doing a conference and Cheryl's the other speaker. And then we just developed a relationship over time. And the thing that she invited me to that changed my life was mountain film. And, you know, I, I was like, oh, I get to hang out with Cheryl. I get to sing and be, you know, inspired by these documentaries. And not only that, but when I was there, I was speaking on a panel and I ended up meeting my life partner. He was moderating the panel. I was speaking about art and democracy. So I, I always joke with Cheryl like that she'll be officiating our wedding if we ever have one. <laughs> When I read uh, the piece that Cheryl wrote from Tiny Beautiful Things, I immediately was like, I want to be like that young boy. Like, I want to be able to say things like that to help other people feel closer to themselves, but also help myself feel close to the reality, the, the actual true core stuff. Then I felt extreme intimidation because forgiveness is a really um, big concept and I, I dare even to say controversial. Like I know people in my life who are pretty polarized about their opinions about forgiveness. I've heard people straight up tell me they're like, I don't believe in forgiveness. 
my journey is about learning to forgive myself and learning to forgive my parents and learning to forgive my abuser. And in the lens of, of domestic violence and sexual assault, forgiveness is also a very, a very tough and very personal thing because every survivor has their own approach with if whether or not they want to forgive. And so how do I take this big idea and make it feel really intimate? And I wish I had filmed the whole process because then I like I went into the studio, like I think it was a four-day process. It was one day going in and I made a couple song ideas and made a couple beats. And then I was like, yeah, maybe this is it. This is it. And then I came back the next day. I was like, oh, no, it's not. Then there was one thing I did that was super simple and soulful. And I almost dismissed it. But my partner, Tom, walked in. He's like, that's that's really good. I was like, eh, it's boring. But then he said like it was it was good. So, you know, my ego is like, okay, maybe I'll play it again. And then I was like, oh, it actually maybe is good. I wrote about being able to forgive someone just like from the perspective of being a survivor. I, I knew that that was like the way I could get in there. The only way for me to be free and to feel a lightness is is for me to somehow find a perspective about that person that can help me move forward. For myself, I was ready to empathize with my abuser's like own family trauma and his own sense of being lost in his life. What was the biggest loss for me in my process was that I lost trust in in my ability to advocate for myself. So I was walking around in my body, in my life experience, not trusting that my decisions coming from my my voice would protect my body. And so I just felt really unsafe with myself. The, the act is committed of sexual assault. And then when the, the person who's been assaulted shares that with someone and that, that someone then shames that person for what happened, that cut is really deep. And if it comes from people we really love and we, we see as our protectors, our parents or our best friends or um, our community, that can feel like a pretty deep betrayal. The idea of slut shaming in some more conservative cultures and traditions is this almost like automatic and unconscious response out of hurt and fear. What was not seen was that I was a child and I needed help. It then took me over a decade to understand that it wasn't my fault. And the cost of carrying something with me thinking it's my fault, it could have been healed in a shorter time span, but also maybe it couldn't have because of the particular culture I grew up in. The empathy I have for my parents is tremendous because I put myself in their shoes and all of that came from tremendous pain and hurt, knowing that their daughter was not able to have that like quote unquote purity that they deemed to be so valuable for my survival. 
it, that was 22 years ago. So it took, it's taken me 22 years to really lovingly like feel for my parents as well. But I had to first like understand it wasn't my fault and forgive myself. I think a lot of us can relate to that, how our parents had just way stricter gender roles that have created stilted emotional patterns that, you know, I, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I've also caused harm to other people and I know what it feels like to feel so tremendously terrible for the harm I've caused and wishing badly I could take it back, but knowing that I could never take it back and it just is sitting and hanging in the air between us. And when someone can forgive me, it's like, it's such a generous gift. And so I just, I think the reason why I can forgive is because I also have done shitty things myself and, and know what it feels like to hurt someone and, and really regret it. It's a big cost to radically forgive, um, in my opinion, and the reward is tremendous freedom and expansiveness within my spirit, and that does not have a price tag. That's priceless. This is Milk with her song, I'm All Right, You're All Right. I don't need an eye for an eye. I got no need for work on blood. The cross you bear won't turn back time. The scars I carry, they no longer defy. Cause I'm headed for freedom. I'm headed for the truth. I'm headed for freedom, so I'm releasing you. I'm alright, you're alright, I'm alright, you're alright, I'm alright. We're gonna be alright, yeah. The past can echo and fill. the wind rush through This is a new day That won't revolve around you Cause I'm headed for freedom I'm headed for the truth I'm headed for freedom So I'm releasing you I see me in you I'm headed for freedom And may you get there too And may you get there too
That was Milk with her song, I'm Alright, You're Alright. I wrote a song in response to Cheryl's letter, too. It's called Leaf Pile, and it's available wherever music streams. Many thanks to Karen Summer Shallot, Lashanti Jupp, Caitlin Randall, Susan McTavish Best, and Molly Hankins for making this episode happen. The next episode features storyteller and screenwriter Neil Gaiman and two members of the Foreplay String Quartet talking about their recent collaboration on the album Signs of Life and sharing a brand new song called The Wreckers. Songwriter is 100% independently produced. If you want to support the artists and the producer who make it, please consider a premium subscription from Apple or Spotify. Or go to songwriterpodcast.com forward slash donate. Five-star reviews and kind words on social media help too. You can always get early access to Songwriter at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks as always to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe.